Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Misanthrope? I don't hate my fellow man, even when he's tiresome and surly and tries to cheat at poker. I figure that's just the human material. And him it finds in it calls for anger and dismay is just a fool for expecting better. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, a group of academics, including Peter Singer, are going to start a new journal of controversial ideas. What's your most controversial idea? Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> no, I can't say them. I can't say my most controversial idea. I don't have a pseudonym. You're chill. Everybody will know. Everybody will know that it's coming from me. You fear repercussions, professional uh, repercussions. Yeah, I do. I, let me guess that your real one involves Jews. <laughs> not con- it's not controversial at all. <laughs> That's true. Uh, There's no professional repercussions for your <laughs> anti-Semitism. If anything, there are professional rewards. It's only some slightly mean stares. You put that in your like full professor promotion file. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I feel like my ideas are all reasonable. I've said this before. I feel like the most controversial part of me is that I have reasonable, very, very reasonable ideas. It's like ironically controversial. Well, so on this first segment, we're going to talk about this new journal, the need for it, the benefits, and perhaps the costs of it. Um and then in the second segment, we're going to talk about um, two essays from Thomas Nagel's Mortal Questions um, that uh, he wrote in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, um, but certainly the ideas are still relevant today. The first is War and Massacre, and the second is an essay called Ruthlessness in Public Life. What are we going to do when we finish this this book <laughs> mortal questions <laughs> well just end the podcast right <laughs> well, just... <laughs> <laughs> no i think then we'll become a full movie podcast which we should have been from the very beginning and you know um good luck with that good luck <laughs> <laughs> thank you well until that sad sad day comes i'm actually i'm actually really nervous about finally have to having to talk about what it's like to be a bat because i have nothing to say uh, it's like pretty cool like i don't know pretty fucked up though you know <laughs> so here's a question about that essay which i haven't read maybe ever but definitely not 
since grad school if I did. Um, That's unbelievable. You wrote a whole fucking paper on zombies and consciousness. How, how could you not have read that essay? I mean, <laughs> you, just you, know, you know me, right? If you just all of a sudden had a glimpse into being what it was like to be be a bat like you were just turned into a bat and then turned back into a human would you be able to remember that and articulate it i think you wouldn't be able to describe it very well because bat la- bat language is so different from our own <laughs> is that right i don't know <laughs> i don't know there's no uh what do you call that thing uh that uh you know I what I'm don't. talking about? That the like the CDs or the website. Oh, the Rosetta. There's no Rosetta Ro- Stone for bat. <laughs> There's no Rosetta yeah, Stone. Yeah. Yeah. I could tell you, but you wouldn't even hear it because it would be ultrasonic. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're both a little tired. Yeah, we're not. Is, we're not like stoned or anything. Hopefully, it's giddy, entertaining, tired, and not boring, rambly, tired. But we make no no promises. Definitely no not. promises. All right, so um, let's talk about this Journal of Controversial Ideas. Um, it was announced earlier this week, and it met with predictable responses, I think. Um, it, it, so I guess Peter Singer, Jeff McMahon, and a an academic from University of Ghent. Um, uh, Francesca Minerva. Yes. Of course, you would forget the only woman on the board. Well, I didn't. I know Jeff McMahon and Peter Zinger. <laughs> yeah, well, that's my controversial idea, forgetting the woman. <laughs> um, it's, it's being started because there is a group of professors, academics, researchers who feel intimidated by defending controversial views. And so this journal will be both open to publishing controversial research and also will give the option they won't it's not required but they'll give the option of publishing pseudonymously so you can use a different name uh, yeah so <laughs> what do you think I, I i'll give you my take but what do you think first so i saw the tweet about this i read exactly one article about it from the Chronicle of Higher Education, which I'll link to. And uh, I read, I've read no reaction. I don't care. I don't know. I mean, I don't, like, I don't, <laughs> it's perfectly fine. That's great. I'm looking forward to reading what people write. I'm cu- I'm curious. Like, I, I, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm already preparing <clears throat> my hoax article to get in. Your but. hoax of controversial <laughs> ideas. Exactly. Yeah, it's like um, uh, I'll, it'll just be a bunch of reasonable ideas, and I'm gonna, and I'm going to mock them. <laughs> I, so I'll admit. So I, I think that it's good to ha- to be able to have uh, to feel if you feel unsafe publishing controversial ideas, then great. It's good to have uh, a place to publish it, uh, aka a blog, <laughs> which which would serve the same purpose. Um, I don't know what well, it wouldn't have peer review like this is going to be a peer-reviewed journal yeah yeah i mean it's like blog comments but before you post it <laughs> it's like 
<laughs> well, no, because it will presumably be curated. And I mean, I guess, you know, the idea is they're going to have rigorous peer reviews. And so unlike a blog. Yeah, I understand. That wasn't the p part of the uh, the analogy that I was trying to carry forth. The part of the analogy, like what I was trying to point at was that like, is is it, is it so much the case that controversial opinions um, and even controversial statements that are written up formally are are not safe such that there needs to be yet another journal introduced um you know if you don't if you don't get to publish in an academic journal um because your ideas get rejected from peer review then then uh, you know i don't feel as if your ideas aren't getting heard they're just not very popular so i'm not against this like i just don't you know, uh, like publish pseudonymously. That's great. I'm actually curious as to what people think is so con like these singer, for instance, and and clearly Minerva have all written very very controversial articles <clears throat> that have been published. And if the fear is that they couldn't write those articles now, um, I don't know. I, I like I don't have any data on it. I don't know if people have gotten their their things rejected. I think that most of the outcry from controversial ideas has come after publication. So I, I have several reactions. My first reaction, I think, somewhat predictable based on what I've said about this stuff in the past. But essentially it's, look, grow a set of fucking balls and put your name on research you stand behind and try to submit it. Like, when did we, when did we stop expecting the tiniest amount of professional courage from <laughs> academics like just the modicum of professional courage publish the thing and if there's blowback deal with the fucking blowback there, there was well, no, this i mean but they can put their name on it they're yeah it's not but, but i just the the point of this what sets this journal apart i take it is that there is that option there that's its raison d'etre as we say I uh, <laughs> is it, is it yeah is that Hebrew I don't, I don't know I think that that's this is encouraging people to not have what I think is a expected level of courage like there there was this uh, someone tweeted out and this was actually evidence of a free speech crisis this psychologist he was a like a, a well-known psychologist full professor he signed a petition on the issue of gender differences in IQ, um, and he signed the petition even though he thought that that was false, right? But he said yeah. he was scared not to sign it. Now, this is a guy who is a full professor. He had tenure, uh, and he didn't have the tiniest bit of courage that is required not to actively endorse a scientific position. He's a scientist, a scientific position that he thought was false. Well, that's not on the climate. That's on him. That's on that guy. That's like what tenure is for. That is why we have it. We have a responsibility to uh, endorse positions as, as, as philosophers, as scientists, that we think are true. And if we don't do that, then we're not carrying out our responsibility. Well, but that's just because this guy is scared. They, to, like, you don't get to be scared of, of, of like, these amorphous things like that. Um, I disagree about the raison d'etre, as you said. 
Um, I think that this that the point of this isn't to allow uh, anonymous publication. It is to print papers that would not presumably be published in other places. And whether or not someone chooses to use a pseudonym, <clears throat> you know, may reflect on their character or not. But this certainly, this could be a journal where everybody publishes with their name and they are able to publish ideas that they think wouldn't get published otherwise. So I, I think that hanging it all on the claim of pseudonymity or, or anonymity is, is not getting at least the spirit of what they're doing right. Well, I mean, I think that that's why this is even a topic that people are talking about. Is Perhaps, that, but it's not why the journal is being proposed. Well, um, I don't think that's true. Like, this is what Jeff McMahon said. Um, there is greater in- inhibition on university campuses about taking certain positions for fear of what will happen. Now, th- this is his defense of why this journal needs to exist. Now, that only makes sense if he's talking about the option to publish pseudonymously, right? That there are people who are worried about the repercussions of publishing controversial research. And they're going, if if anything, it'll be more obvious if it's in a journal of controversial ideas, it will be, (laughs) it will more likely come to light. So if they're is inhibition about that, then it's got to be for that. Like, I I disagree with you. I don't know why you think that that's not the goal of this journal, or at least Um, a big part of it. Because it's not, I mean, it it may be that that's what's required for people to feel protected, but it's like, it's not at all obvious that what they're not looking for is just to publish ideas that might not be published otherwise. I, I guess, right, like part of it is to protect from the backlash, but another part of it seems to be to get the idea out there in a way that wouldn't otherwise be gotten gotten out. And I, I, like the, the whole anonymity thing, like it seems as if not a whole lot of work would, would have to be done to figure out who the actual author was. Like I don't know how they can, how they could even, I mean, if I wrote an anonymous article, it would be obvious that it was me because I'd be citing myself so much. If I did that, it would be obvious from the lucid yet lively prose style. Uh, So let's say they removed the option to publish pseudonymously. Then, yeah, I mean, then it really just depends on whether there are certain kinds of ideas that really don't get an outlet because they are deemed out of bounds or they're deemed too controversial. And I, like like you, I don't know the data on that. Here's what I would request, though, for people who keep talking about the negative repercussions, the, the fear, the, the professional consequences of publishing this stuff, um, which really has been what the debate has been about, has been about that for this journal. And one of the things I was thinking about and thinking about talking uh, to you about this is I, I, I think people, if they're going to lean on that, they need to say exactly what they're afraid of. Like, what what negative repercussions in particular are you worried about? What are you afraid of? Is it losing your job? Well, if it's losing your job, we can look at data and see how many people have lost their job because they've published controversial research. If it's not getting hired, that's a little trickier, but at least we... if that's the thing we can at least look into that we can look into whether 
departments are not hiring people who are defending certain controversial claims in that research area. But right now, it's just this amorphous, we're intimidated, we're afraid, there are professional consequences without ever really specifying what the thing is that they're afraid of. And often it sounds like what they're afraid of is just people criticizing them on Twitter or, you know, like people talking behind their backs at, uh, at, at parties or meetings or and and that's just like that that i think just comes with the territory of defending a com a controversial idea like that's the kind of blowback that you have to suck it up and take if you want to defend a controversial idea which you should yeah i i guess like that untenured professors might be so so there is so, so but then like is there are there examples of people who didn't get that that's fine if that's the fear are there examples of people who didn't get tenure because they their research was too controversial there's probably data on that there's probably people who've sued over that and we could look at those cases and see but there's you know it, uh, you're not allowed to just say you're afraid of something so my neighborhood wants to have a con- like a constable program where we all have to contribute money and they say they're scared we'll say well what are you scared of well we're scared of like house break-ins or muggings or sexual assault you can look at the data you can at least try to see is are these fears justified but if if they're if they're not then your your well, uh, being scared doesn't justify this new thing coming in to um to address that that's more your personal problem well so apparently minerva is stated in this chronicle article um received threats for her uh paper on afterbirth abortion so if there's it's certainly the case that uh pro-lifers have engaged in violence against people who are pro-choice so so uh, this is just an, an exercise Wait, that I'm... No, that's not true. There's not a single academic who's published... Like, did Judith Jarvis Thompson not, have to get, like, an well, escort for... Uh... What I said was that pro-lifers have engaged in violence against pro-choicers. I, I, that's all I said. Right? You're not denying that. I, yeah, I am denying it. I'm denying... No, I mean, I'm talking about academics. I'm just talking about, like... You mean, like, the... no, they've, they've performed violence on people who perform abortions. Yeah, Not on people who are pro-choice. People who uh, are going to get abortions. That's right. Who are pro-choice. pro-choice. But it's not yeah. because they're pro-choice. It's because they're actually performing the abortions. Well, yeah, f- fair enough. Like, I, this, is all, this is all just to try to get you to, to imagine, <laughs> before you resist my argument, that if your claim is that they not, they're not clarifying what they're afraid of, if they do clarify what they're afraid of, I don't know that that would make you change your mind because all you would do is say, like, the base rates are so low that you ought not be afraid of it. But, like... Well, right. Or there would be... The base rates would be higher that I would say that's okay to be afraid of. I changed my mind. For But you for don't somebody, just get to be afraid of nothing ju- why? and just say that you're afraid for no reason and, like, but that's all, more something that you deal with with your therapist. That's not something you, that... You, but you, but you also don't get to call people cowards because you don't agree with what they're afraid of. It's not, a, no, there's like objective basis. 
you're being quite a busybody about these people accusing them of cowardice and telling them what they're not allowed to do. All they're doing is starting a fucking journal. Like, that's it. Like, No, I don't care about the people. I mean, that's fine. But I think that as a professional academic, one of your responsibilities is to stand behind and put your name on controversial research. And when you don't do that, what you are doing is, A, you're contributing to this ridiculous paranoia that makes everybody else cry babies about like oh my god i can't i can't say anything or the i'll I'll get death threats and twitter mobs will come after me and my and i'll never get tenure or i'll never get uh i'll never get promoted or i'll never get this job you're contributing to that whole climate uh and worse than that like so you think of that psychologist who signed that petition imagine if he had taken a stand against it now other people who are secretly also wanting to take a stand against it might feel a little bit more comfortable doing that now that somebody who was prominent and totally protected had had done it as well like i want to get at at the the general view that that you think that publishing with a pseudonym is cowardly because certainly there have been a ton of cases in history where people have published on with pseudonyms because they thought the idea was so important to get out and they wanted to get the idea out without getting say um like burned at thrown the stake. in jail yeah burned at the stake and so again obviously these aren't going to be people who are burned at the stake but i don't know that that so you might say their fear is irrational, but is the act of publishing under a pseudonym itself irrational? I mean, is itself cowardly? Only if the threat is largely imagined. Then it's not just irrational. I think it's like, you know, immoral, non-virtuous. I don't know about immoral, but like but I just think you should stand behind your research. And, you know, at the very least have the decency to say what it is that you're scared of and back it up if you're not going to do that. If you're really going to publish, if you really think I can only publish this not with my real name because of the consequences, then say what those consequences are that you're afraid of. That's all. It's not but, too much yeah, sex. But we know we know what they're afraid of. I think your claim is more an empirical one. That they I don't know. No, of. I don't. Yeah, they're they're afraid of, of not getting tenure and of getting death threats and of getting, you know, their career ruined that's what they're afraid of like you you could disagree with that that's going to happen but they're afraid of getting their career ruined it's like that's at least the stated fear that i'm sure it's not it's not a mystery so then but okay if that's the stated fear then just there's data how many people that's happened to sure and then you can figure out whether it's a rational fear or a completely irrational fear uh and that i think is important to there's one thing that I will agree with you on, that if you are at the level of expertise where you can write an informed, good journal article that could that could withstand peer review um, in any kind of journal, then publishing anonymously seems a little odd to me. Um, like, it seems as if this is this is your life's work. And if, for instance, I was studying something if I were studying something that was uh, controversial to the ex- but I was an expert in, um, then I would probably find 
other ways to communicate these ideas, you know, and and stand behind them because I was certain in my scientific expertise on the matter. So, plus, you know, like, don't you care about getting that other publication on your CV? <laughs> how are you gonna how are you gonna put that on your H index? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things that they floated was you could publish it anonymously until a certain thing happened. You got that job offer, or you got tenure, and then you would reveal it was me all along. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait till you talk to your mother over Thanksgiving about this. Your stepmom. <laughs> no, I, I mean, like you know that I disagree with her about the general climate, and so I'm gonna disagree. With, I mean, I think she'll agree that people should strap on a, you know. <laughs> What's the a, metaphor there? <laughs> that that a helmet. clockwork orange uh, <laughs> dildo and publish that paper on race and IQ. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, maybe suppose that Herdstein and Murray had published under a, a completely anonymous name. Um, <clears throat> you know, maybe, maybe their ideas would have gotten out there as, as much as people might disagree with them, but they wouldn't have gotten personally attacked. So you're you're saying it's just a better world in which they are willing to get the personal yeah. attacks. They're willing to um, have like a some Middlebury people rock their car, uh, <laughs> by uh, but to like that's to put their name to that to that piece. Now, of course, they rocked their car like twenty five years later, but <laughs> yeah. it's it's, a, it's an old grudge. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree that I think if you have a controversial idea, like that's sort of what I was saying in the beginning. I don't think actually there's a lack of outlets for publishing controversial ideas. Like I think that that it would be interesting. I I bet you in many cases where people think that they weren't published because their idea was quote unquote controversial, it might just be because their idea was crappy. Yeah, and so <clears throat> so. But what I am sort of interested in is whether or not this journal will publish more than just sort of, you know, uh, uh, Google memo style shit about, you know, the gender pay gap and race and IQ. Like, will right. they publish really? Will they publish like a Marxist take on something, you know, or or like a uh, any idea that's controversial or are they just saying we need the this particular set of ideas about <clears throat> race and gender. I, I like to think that they're sensitive to that worry and that they will publish also sort of radical left, not just like the hit list, like the top 10 uh, right. things that people say <laughs> you're not allowed to talk about anymore. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, some truly radical ideas. And if that happened... That would be, I guess, a good thing. I mean, look, I, I wanted to take a slightly more extreme position <laughs> than I actually have. Like, it'd be interesting to see just the first few issues, see how, yeah. how the papers are and see how. And if anything, my beef is less with the journal and more with the people who are publishing under pseudonyms because I really do think they're contributing. One thing that Justin Weinberg at the Daily News, like one worry about this that we haven't talked about, but I thought was somewhat interesting and is that peop, if, if you start this journal, it's 
it, it's like a proclamation that there's a need for it. And then people will use it as evidence, as I'm sure they already are. Look, they need this journal out there because that's how bad college campuses are right now, where you can't say anything or uh, you'll get fired and or you'll get a Twitter mob and death threats. and, And so this is the only way to get certain ideas out there. There's no academic freedom anymore. Like, so... So it's contributing to that media industry of complaining about the climate on college campuses. Right. Um, by the way, now now I see where I, I got my emphasis. In that Chronicle article, there's a sentence that says, one unusual feature of the journal will be giving authors the option to use a pseudonym, though the journalist editors say they hope most will feel comfortable using their real names. And those really are two different issues. It really is the case that one is the fear of repercussion, and the other one is that there is no outlet to publish uh, articles. And those, I think, are separable, and they're they're both empirical questions. But if the if that if the part that's if the part of the claim or the 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 reason for starting this journal is that <clears throat> controversial ideas are getting rejected from journals where just because they're controversial in a particular way, there should be a backlog of wonderful papers just ready to go because <laughs> right. people haven't found any anywhere to publish them. And I, so, I suspect that that's not true. I think that whenever there is outcry, it's because those articles have been published. Uh, that's the part that I'm skeptical about, that there really is a need in that sense. Well, I think so, so what, what the rebuttal to that they would say is, well, people don't even bother writing on those topics or doing the research on those topics because they know. But this is how this snowball effect happened. It's this manufactured like feedback loop where uh, it just it's it, it just creates the the myth creates itself, right? Like right. you hear that you're never gonna get this paper on IQ and whatever published. So you you shouldn't even try to write it. You shouldn't even try to run that study, develop that argument. And so that's what they'll say. And but, yeah, yeah, maybe. That's, that's uh, like I sort of suspect that if you really, really care, say, about IQ and <clears throat> you have these controversial theories about race and you're an expert on IQ... I more suspect that whatever people's sentiment is, is that they kind of have a view that's not really part of their scholarship. It's just this view, secret view that they hold that they're afraid to say, because like, whatever, I don't study gender, I don't study race, but I kind of think there might be biological, you know, and, and they are imputing this fear on this actual scholars of that field, which I haven't found to be, you know, they haven't shied. I don't think it's obviously hard to know the file drawer. But there are plenty of people who haven't shied away from making those claims. And the, the one thing that uh, Minerva says is that, or at least in this Chronicle article, it says that it's the journals that have sort of uh, uh, pulled their articles. You know, like when they say, like, oops, oops, we shouldn't have published this. That, <clears throat> that, that That's happened like twice. I know. I know. I know. It seems... That's like ne- yeah. that never happens. Think of every journal article that that is published and they don't pull it. And and like it happened, I, it 
it happened like with a poem in the nation. <laughs> yeah, I was and, say, and, we need a, that's what we need is a journal of controversial poems. Yeah, exactly. AKA. A journal of white guys writing ebonic in ebonics or whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like Nordic ebonic literature. I, <laughs> but <laughs> no, I mean like like Rebecca Tuvel is not surprisingly a name that you hear in these contexts and yeah that was bad but that happened one single time yeah yeah well well you know once is in one one bicycle accident can get you to wear your helmet tamler one bicycle accident 40 scholars on the editorial board so there are people who sympathize with their aims um yeah because this whole thing is this uh it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like people right. just talk about it, and then that makes the fears greater, and that confirms the fears, and this whole thing yeah. just... Pretty soon, no more dildo jokes. Pretty soon. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, we've spent all, so much time on this. <laughs> I know. It. Uh, someone asked me to... Uh, Sarah Hader, who I really like, actually, um, said I should write up my ideas on this, and I just yeah, I, I don't that. feel like I sh- can do that. Like, Why not? Because of fear of repercussions. Yeah, I just I just think that you know, like I'll get death threats. <laughs> Publish it under Samler Tummers. Samler oh. Tummers and Pavid Desaro have written a hot new article. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, we were gonna we were gonna collaborate on an op-ed, right? One day. One day, we might disagree so much that it. No. <laughs> it's just we nothing but tractate for the sake of like, especially on this issue. Yeah, yeah, I think I know. we disagree for the sake of disagreeing. Not I, for, like I wanted to make it entertaining for our listeners. Yeah, I don't know about <laughs> that though. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, all shall right. we take a break and come yeah. back to do some more nagel gazing? Yeah, <laughs> nice. All right, now we'd like to take a moment to thank. Our sponsor for this episode, once again, it is GiveWell.org, quickly becoming my favorite charity. And this time of year, Thanksgiving is around the corner, and we all know that the holiday seasons start right after Halloween nowadays. Uh, You might be actually thinking extra about what charities to donate to, and if if my optimism in humanity is, is safe, then you're at least thinking that you ought to donate to some charity. But you might not know who to donate to. And if you're like me and you get all those emails in your inbox or even letters in the mail asking you to donate to various charities, then this is the website and the organization for you. GiveWell has a short list of top-rated evidence-backed charities that can help your charitable dollar go the furthest. So if you go to their website, it'll actually give you metrics of which charities do the most good, specifically in terms of the lives saved or improved for every dollar that you donate. And it recommends top charities, nine top charities, with all of the research to back it that would help the poorest people in the world. Now, again, this does not mean that you can't donate to whatever your charity of choice is. But if you do want to give an additional donation, or maybe you're young and you haven't started donating and you have some extra income, I think GiveWell.org is a great place to start. Um, For instance, one of my favorite charities is the Against Malaria Foundation. Uh, it distributes $5 nets to prevent malaria and avert child deaths. For whatever you might think of utilitarianism or consequentialism, this one's a no-brainer. You want your money to be more effective rather than less effective. That's that's all you need to endorse if uh, to see that this website is a great idea and this organization is a great idea. 
That's right. And so um, if you would, if you have it in your heart to be generous, do us a favor and go to givewell.org. Let them know that Very Bad Wizards listeners are actually sensitive to the suffering of others and uh, go ahead and sign up. It's really, really easy to sign up. I did it. It's very quick, a couple of minutes, and you could actually literally save a life. Thanks to givewell.org for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time, we like to take a moment to thank all the people who interact with us, who uh, engage with the Very Bad Wizards community. I mean, I think we can feel comfortable saying that there is a Very Bad Wizards community on Reddit, on Facebook, on Twitter. If you want to engage with us, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. We read all emails, even if we don't have time to respond to all of them or even very many of them. Sometimes you... I even have emotional reactions to them, but don't respond. <laughs> I know. Like, like recently, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you can tweet us at Tamler, at Peas, at Very Bad Wizards. You can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Very Bad Wizards. You can go to our Reddit subreddit, which is just Very Bad Wizards, one word. You can like us or no. So follow us on Instagram, sext us on Snapchat. No, you can't really do that. I'm under a pseudonym on Snapchat. That's that's professional cowardice. You, you, you can, and I just mean because you're a male prostitute. Um, and you can support us in more tangible ways. Oh, wait, no, you can also support us in one slightly less tangible way. Uh, rate us <laughs> on iTunes. And then now you can support us in more tangible ways by um, going to Very Bad Wizard Support, one of three or four different ways. You can, before shopping on Amazon, go to our support page, click on our link, and we will get a little chunk of whatever you spend. You can give a one-time donation on PayPal. And you can also become one of our beloved Patreon patrons and donate a specific amount for each episode. And we have different levels of reward for each of those amounts of donations. We really love our Patreon supporters and all the people who help us either through Amazon or iTunes, not iTunes, Amazon or PayPal. 
and Patreon. Uh, uh, the, the other thing you can do is buy our t-shirts and mugs and various hoodies at uh, Teespring. We should get another campaign going because there's some there's some momentum for that. Mm, there's right. a lot of you know <clears throat> now that Beto you know that didn't work out. I think now <laughs> the new cause is a, a new very bad wizard t-shirts. <laughs> and if you want to support Tamler and by uh, by sort of contagion support very bad wizards, check out his new audiobook narrated by Tamler Summers himself. I have not downloaded it because I do not think I could listen to your voice for that long. It's already been about 300 hours of listening to you. <laughs> I definitely couldn't, but I appreciate all the people who've downloaded so far. There's been a good amount of support just from Twitter. I, 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 I'm, I'm really thankful to everybody who has downloaded it, and I apologize for when you get to the part where i try to recite a few battle rap verses oh yeah i gotta i just gotta download that just so that i can sample it oh (laughs) god (laughs) like i i it was i think it was bad enough that i didn't want to then go back and redo it which you have the option when you're narrating (laughs) a book like i can always go can i do that again but i was like i just i don't want to keep like it's just too embarrassing so yeah. Yeah. We'll forget that that ever happened. Somehow I think that I'll be reminded of it. But <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. So, yeah, thank you. Okay. So, for this episode, even though we spent way too long talking about something that we weren't going to spend that long talking on, uh, we have once again dipped into the Nagel well um, and chosen a couple of, of articles, essays from his book, Mortal Questions, which, if you've been a listener for any time, you know that we've been working our way through this book. Um, This time we chose two chapters. For all I know, we won't get to both of them, but they are chapters five and six, War and Massacre. And I feel like I'm leading out a Bible study. If you turn to chapter four, verse 12, um, War and Massacre and Ruthlessness in Public Life. Do you mind? I think I want to start with Ruthlessness in Public Life. Do you have a preference? No. Okay, let me give a quick summary to the extent that this can be summarized because it actually is arguments with a a number of steps. The problem that Nagel starts out with is one that I think is really interesting. It is that crimes that are committed by, by, say, members of government have a funny property, which is that while we get very easily outraged by, say, the murder that an individual committed, like a private, a private crime, like the kinds of murders that are ordered by people in positions of powers or other crime, crimes that are ordered by people in a position of power, like presidents and generals and prime ministers, seem to be, those people seem to be insulated from the same uh, moral condemnation that individuals are. And so, so one way to think of it is, as Tamler said in the intro, this, uh, these both were written sort of in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. One way to think about it is there were people who were directly responsible for what we might consider uh, complete moral atrocities, moral atrocities on a scale that is unimaginable as an individual, but who, and I think this was a, a really nice way of putting it, who 
Nagel says even the staunchest of anti-war protesters would not have that big of a problem like meeting that person and shaking their hand and having a conversation. So one of the examples he uses is McNamara, Robert McNamara. And at the time that he was writing this, McNamara was president of the World Bank. And this was after arguably being responsible. He was, what, secretary of defense at the time of the Vietnam War. And so behind arguable, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a Vietnam historian, so I don't know to what extent Nagel is right about McNamara's role in these crimes. But yeah, in other words, but he did not suffer any professional consequences. Yeah, there are people who have done what I would consider to be horrendous things or responsible in a really direct way um, for horrible things who don't seem to suffer the same consequences that an individual would for even a fraction of that. Um, So the question that Nagel wants to ask is, what is it about being in this public role that seems to insulate you from the kind of moral condemnation that you would have as an individual? What does this say about the nature of public morality? Is it derived from our notions about individual morality, personal morality? And if so, why do we seem to give have such a different reaction to those two kinds of crimes? Or is it the case that public morality is just a different beast, that it actually, it actually is not derivable from uh, personal morality? So it's like um, a separate sphere of morality, like an incommensurable, different set of moral principles applied to public rather than private. Right. So they might derive from a common source, but because of the differences in the way in which public life is structured and public institutions are structured, they sort of go through a different filter. So even though they're based on the same foundations, um, they look very different by the time they get to our moral judgments about those people. And so it's not as if those people are incapable of doing wrong. Like, so they might be involved in a personal scandal, for instance, like they, you know, they might be uh, shown to have had an affair or did something shady in their personal life. And, and we might condemn them for that. But it seems that in their capacity as a public figure, the actions that are part of their duties as a public figure seem to be somewhat insulated from moral from condemnation. condemnation. Right. In yeah. fact, there, he, he says it's kind of a trade off the way we do it right now. Like we criticize that we wouldn't just criticize some stranger for having an affair. Uh, <laughs> right. But we we will criticize Bill Clinton for doing that. Uh, but in exchange for that, we don't criticize him for being responsible for certain moral atrocities um, that he is committing. If I'm not saying Clinton did, but I'm saying <laughs> a public official would do while he's exercising the power of that office. So it could be the fact that you are placed under a special obligation when you serve a public role. You might think of this as a power that just corrupts or that that because you're in charge, say, of, of protecting the American people, maybe you should, maybe uh, we believe that you could protect them by any means necessary. But he says that's not right. Like just, be, just because you have this new special obligation, it doesn't at all... Uh, seem intuitive that you would have the ability to do whatever. And here's, I think, the the critical part. When you're taking on the responsibility for a larger group, all of a sudden you're shifted toward impartiality in a way that's really different from your personal requirements. 
right? I, I think that's the crux of this of this difference that impartiality and more consequentialist kind of exactly and impartiality in the way that everybody counts for the same like if you're responsible for say an entire group of people say say a nation of people you have to treat everybody in your decisions as if so long as they're in your group you have to treat them as if they are equal you you're not given the privilege of of like we as individuals have of, of favoring um, somebody who's your friend or favoring your family members. And that requirement, that requirement of impartiality kicks into gear. If I understand the argument, right, it kicks into gear a way of having to make moral decisions that is ultimately consequentialist. But so this is the thing that confused me about this essay, right? Well, yeah. That seems true, but it seems true more when we're evaluating, you know, like judges, prosecutors, DAs, um, people who deal with domestic issues. The issue that he leads off with is, how, like, what do we think of someone like Robert McNamara, responsible in large part for escalating the Vietnam War? The fact that he is bound by certain impartiality requirements that private people aren't, I don't see how that is is relevant to that question. Right. Uh, because you're right that he does start by saying, like, their special obligations are to the in-group, right, to the group that they are protecting, the group that they've been... Right. And that seems the salient thing, right? Is that, that that's your job is to promote the interests of your country, in this case, if you're a secretary of defense. Yeah. So he says, perhaps the most significant action-centered feature of public morality is a special requirement to treat people in the relevant population equally. Public policies and actions have to be much more impartial than private ones since they usually employ a monopoly of certain kinds of power and since there is no reason in their case to leave room for the personal attachments and inclinations that shape individual lives. So suppose that you are in charge of a public utility. You are serving the entire population your obligation is to serve the entire population. You have to make decisions based on the welfare of that everybody in that pop population as sort of equivalent. You are uh, your obligation is different than that what you would have as an individual. Like if your power was out and I only had one candle or whatever, I would take it to you, Tamler, my friend, as opposed to taking it to some stranger. I wouldn't feel the equ equivalent pull to help a stranger as I would to help you. The reason that this is important and why it gets to the question of, of decisions made during wartime is that this demand placed on you to, to be a consequentialist in your decisions for the relevant group that you're protecting shifts your orientation, your moral orientation from a more deontological constraints on action view, you're constrained against doing certain things no matter what, that being serving everybody equivalently means that you have to, th that the best way to make that decision is to say what will help all of these people, what will maximize the help for all of these people. And I think that what he wants to say is that when you're, say, making wartime decisions, it's very easy to fall into a consequentialist form of reasoning that ignores the constraints that we have as individuals and that when you're trying to maximize the protection on your people, it's very easy to say, well, 
if I torture the enemy or if I napalm them or if I committed these other atrocities, like, like you destroy an entire village because even though there's 100 people in the village, there are two soldiers there, that it allows you to justify it on the basis of your, your need, your motivation to protect everybody in your in-group, in your relevant population, right. um, keep them safe. So the consequentialism and the impartiality here is not a universal impartiality that, you know, the Will McCaskills of the world are promoting, the Peter Singers of the world are promoting. It is a consequentialism and an impartiality. I mean, it's not even... It's a local impartiality. It's a local consequentialism. And it is, it is, it exists only because you have, you have taken on the obligation of, of protecting whatever your relevant party is. Um, and you're and you're right to distinguish that. He's I mean, this actually is why, part of what I found confusing about this essay. Like, I I think that you could write this essay about people whose primary obligations are to the domestic population. That would be one question, and then the obligations and actions of people whose when we're talking about moral atrocities or immoral actions, they're primarily to people who are not part of the population, not part of the in-group, that's a different question, right? And and he puts them together. And, I'm, yeah. and I don't totally get how, why we shouldn't analyze those two kinds of cases differently. Separately. Like the, sec- the, the Secretary of uh, Energy or the Secretary of Education or something, we're going to look at them differently than we're going to look at somebody like Henry Kissinger. That's that's a different kind of dilemma. See what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah. I think that what he's trying to say is that in both cases, um, you might be motivated to act in a way that violates the normal constraints you would have on action. And the way that you would do that is by making arguments up uh, about the overall consequences of your action and therefore ignoring the constraints on harm that that uh, right. sort of common sense deontology requires. So that might actually mean shitting on one segment of your population to save a larger segment. So right. you could actually hurt people in your own group um, because you're trying to save the majority of the group. Um, and you could you know, commit atrocities. I mean, in, in some sense, you might argue that this is you know, you could argue that, say, Native Americans or African Americans are that they were willing to, for the sake of of the larger population, do things that would normally be considered immoral for an individual to do to another individual. I I think that he thinks that it's the same mechanism. It's the kicking you into the consequence based reasoning and sacrificing the constraint based reasoning that is yeah. that is allowing this and. Nagel is not saying that this is a mistake. He's saying that is exactly what your obligation requires you to do. He's saying you have to think in that way because that's just what it means to make moral decisions when you're re- when you have an obligation to an entire group. You kick into this local impartiality and local maximization and that's not in and of itself wrong because you'd actually be a shitty leader if all you were doing was like you know, protecting yeah. the people that you cared about. It's just that this is exactly where he thinks the distortion can come in, where you start being able to justify um, things that do that are really, really immoral 
because you have let yourself lapse into purely consequentialist reasoning. Yeah. There's one other element I think that is worth mentioning, which is when you are part of, and this applies both to international and domestic officials, you are part of a larger machine and you are just doing your role to contribute to some sort of I mean, this is, you can certainly relate it to the consequentialist idea, but this idea that while you might be doing something wrong in isolation, you are contributing through your office to some sort of greater good, that that idea is, and that's a little different than just kicking into consequentialism, because yep. you're, it, it's, this thing that I'm doing seems wrong, but that's just because you're not looking at the larger consequentialist machine. Um, and and once you see that, and you see how all these parts are interrelated, then you will see that what I'm doing is right. So maybe you know you can think about this in criminal justice. Maybe this prosecutor is charging some some kid from the inner city with seven different crimes to get him to accept a plea deal that will save the the court a lot of money, and that would be just totally wrong and inequitable and unfair. But the prosecutor can justify it by saying, I am part of this larger system that is contributing to making this city safe or something like that. That's right. And you're right to point this out as a different thing. So it says that the constraints of public morality are not imposed as a whole in the same way on all public actions or on all public affairs. Because public agency is itself complex and divided, there is a corresponding ethical division of labor or ethical specialization. Different aspects of public morality are in the hands of different officials. This can create the illusion that public morality is more consequentialist or less restrictive than it is because the general conditions may be wrongly identified with the boundaries of a particular role. So we don't have an ethical division of labor when it comes to our personal actions. Yeah, It, it is you. You are the agent. You decide what is good and what's bad. But the division of labor in something as complex, say, as the government or the military or anything like that, it really does require everybody to make sure that they're they're playing their part in the overall system that might itself be maximizing um, consequences. And then the question is, what if the overall system is morally fucked? It's you think about the flow of information that's necessary to evaluate the system as a whole, right? Uh, the military is a great example for this, where if you're on a need-to-know basis and you're taking orders you're putting an implicit trust that the system itself is acting morally. And that would mean that very few people have the bird's eye view. You're trusting that everything is coming together in a way that is going to be justified, even if it's justified by the outcomes. Um, and and so you could see why it would be very easy to to not question the actions that turn out to be pretty fucking, pretty fucking bad. Because, right, that's your job. And if so, if you're already in a consequentialist mindset and people tell you this is going to lead to the best consequentialist outcome, again, this could be consequentialist for your country, not as a, for the whole world, and you don't have the knowledge or ability to discover whether that's true or not, then you are going to perform your duties uh, in your capacity and not be inhibited because you ha- that's you can be somewhat confident that you are performing that duty for some sort of greater good. Right. And 
and again, it's this is not Nagel mounting an argument against like the you know public institutions being consequentialist. And he's saying this is a natural result of what it means to be in in charge of so many people, and it has this ethical division of labor. It's just what happens. Like so, the question is. So he says, like, but not everything is permitted. Restrictions on the treatment of individuals continue to operate from a public point of view, and they cannot be implemented entirely by the courts. One of the hardest lines to draw in public policy is the one that defines where the end stops justifying the means. If results were the only basis for public morality, results being outcome-based, right, um, then it would be possible to justify anything, including torture and massacre, in the service of sufficiently large interests. Whether the limits are drawn by specific constitutional protections or not, the strongest constraints of, the in- of individual morality will continue to limit what can be publicly justified, even by extremely powerful consequentialist reasons. So that's the structure of, of the argument, but he's basically just saying that consequentialist outcome-based reasons are a natural result of the particular obligations we have when we take on leadership roles, and they are they can they can be very different for good reason than private moral obligations and the constraints we have on action. But he, he ends up just saying like, well, look, the, the moral cushion that insulates your actions, the consequentialist-based actions that are that might violate your private morality, that's, it can't, it can't just insulate you from everything. And that just because you have a public obligation to a group does not mean that that is the only consideration that you have. You don't get just a blank check to be a, a only a maximizer of the interests of the group. You still have to balance other interests, which for, for Nagel are, are these constraints on action. Um, like that leads that just leads me to the beginning. Like, how do we know under what conditions is justified or not? And and just pointing to the different pressures we have, um, and how they can be in tension with each other, and these sort of vague suggestions about how to keep it in check. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think. The charitable way to read it is be on the lookout for these potential errors. The fact that when you take a public office, you are obligated to your group, that that's your job is to serve their interest. It doesn't mean that you have no other moral obligations besides that. And yeah. people can, and you know, that is, is an error that people can naturally make. Look, uh, my job was to serve the u.s military and so i performed this action because it was i was informed that this was going to be in the interests of the u.s military and i think he's saying but you also have to remember that you have these other obligations too and and i guess this this sounds right to me says let me return finally to the individuals who occupy public roles even if public morality is not substantively derivable from private it applies to individuals so I think part of what his call is, is that that your taking on the role does not prevent you from moral condemnation for what you've done. At a certain point, they're going to at, they can ask you. This is possible. It's happened. It's actual. They can ask you to do something that you recognize is immoral, and at that point, your duty to 
private morality overrides your public morality duty. I mean, this I guess this is the technical philosophical question is how to, you know, what's reducible to what. But at some point, your duty to your fellow human being outweighs your duty to your particular in-group. And then your your obligation, your all-things-considered obligation is to resist or at least refuse to participate. So he says he, somebody who's committed public wrongs in the exercise of his office can be just as guilty as a private criminal. Sometimes his responsibility is partly absorbed by the moral defects of the institution through, institution through which he acts. But the plausibility of that excuse is inversely proportional to the power and independence of the actor. So, yeah. and, and really what he ends with is, unfortunately, this is not reflected in our treatment of former public servants who have often done far worse than take bribes. So this brings us back to this, this what he starts out with, which is, why aren't we, like, abhorred? Like, suppose that you thought Ronald Reagan was, like, you know, caused, like, the suffering of countless people. Like, why isn't it that when you meet him, you're just like, even if you agree, like, say you're the staunchest liberal who agrees that, like, Reagan might have been responsible for just, like, the suffering of countless people. When you meet him, you're still kind of like, oh, I'm meeting Ronald Reagan. Yeah, I mean, partly that's just his personality and, you know, maybe there was a genial... Stalin-like figure, you know, maybe. I mean, who knows what would have happened if you'd meet Mussolini or something like that. Right. But, you know, he's a funny Italian little dude. But but I think also, like, that there is this feeling like, like, so say Cheney is a good example because he doesn't have the sort of affability of someone like Reagan. So uh, he doesn't have that uh, kind It seems of, pretty charming to me. <laughs> yeah, no, you've always had a weird attraction to him. But if you, you can maybe convince yourself, look, as horrific as I think the consequences of what he was doing um, were, did think that he was doing it. He didn't do it for private gain. He didn't, he thought he was, he thought he was helping the interests of the American people. And and so it's harder at least to, I mean, not that people have so much of trouble condemning Dick Cheney, but like, you know, he, but you he don't wasn't treat him doing like it. Ted Bundy, but, you, right? Like you don't treat him like Ted Bundy and Ted Bundy, arguably like whatever your politics are, whoever, whoever has been in, whoever the leader is that's been in charge of, of the, the deaths of, lots of innocent people or whatever he would have killed he would be responsible for five thousand times the number of deaths that the like most of the the worst serial killer has right so the zodiac killer so this this is like what the the starting of this and the ending of this was just about this very point i don't know if if it's because of what nagel says it is like I buy the tension between public and private morality and the the need to have outcome-based morality and sort of this action-based morality as a person and outcome-based morality as a leader. But I don't buy that that's what's driving our intuitions. Like I think it's the fact that that the violence wasn't personal and that there are plenty of other people sort of diffusing the chain of action that led to the deaths of thousands. I think that's what actually is is serving as the buffer, not any real difference between... Well, that's also the cog 
that's part of the cog explanation, which he sort of floats, but then it just goes away a little bit. Like, but I think that is a primary thing: is we're part of this larger machinery, and if you're a president, you're elected president, you inherit all these uh, wars yeah. and problems, and you do the best you can with that, with limited information and limited. Uh, opportunities and you have all these political constraints and you have all these and so we just think it's so complicated too it's not like right. complicated not to go out and kill people like the zodiac killer like it's not like well what, what else would i was i gonna do under the circumstances <laughs> but you feel that to some extent I mean, I remember in my interview with Zimbardo, I was saying, now this was before we learned the revelations, but I was asking him, <laughs> why are you so hard on Cheney and Condoleezza Rice and Rumsfeld? Why are you so hard on them, but not <laughs> hard on the ringleaders in Abu Ghraib? And he's like, well, they created the situation. And I was like, well, aren't they part of some larger situation which is 9-11 happened, there's all these calls, there's all this fear, there's all this, you know, they're now in power, they have to do something, they have to act. Isn't that a situation also that's like a rotten barrel that will will get people to uh, act immorally when they otherwise wouldn't? You know, like, I don't think he gave us in the interview a satisfactory <laughs> answer to that. No, I think this is actually like a yeah. deep in, the, a deep inconsistency in many people's views. Like yeah. uh, a lot of psychologists will, you know, be very, very quick to excuse or, or at least provide a defense of the of some version of situationism for 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 low certain level. people low yeah. the low level the yeah. the people on the street the yeah. the functionaries the are low level people yeah <laughs> yeah um but like they save all their moral outrage for the people at the top yeah i mean i i think that what's going on like i like it's not independent of that explanation that they're cogs um that they're getting the machines moving it is just i think that the that uh that there is an interesting psychological aspect to it that of course, why wouldn't, you know, Nagel's not going to write about that, but it's, it's that your hands aren't tainted in the same way that like as a serial right. killer you are. Right. And, and so, yeah, you made a decision that caused a decision that caused a decision that killed people. Um, but in a real dumb way, I don't, I don't like, I'm not, like abhorred by your presence um, because somehow you didn't wrap your hands around that person. Maybe I take it that if you really, really are a good consequentialist, you, well, maybe, maybe this is unfair, yeah, but mean, it seems as if you ought to be outraged. You know, more. More. And right? it's not it like be, there aren't people who are outraged more yeah. at, uh, war criminals than they are uh, right. you know, low level <laughs> criminals right. but the, the, those people do exist um, but I think there is a natural inclination to cut them not just more slack but magn orders of magnitude more slack based on you know the, the the what they did and the amount of suffering that they've caused relative to the people that you're not come, cutting slack to yeah. And I th I think that um it's 
informative. Like, uh, do, do, I think I've talked about this, the set of studies that uh, Eric Ullman and David Tannenbaum did, where ba- basically they they ask people to make judgments about a CEO who spent like some ungodly amount of money on like a golden toilet, like a golden latrine in their office, like say it's like $10,000. People are just more upset about that than like a CEO who caused like, you know, people to lose their, their life savings and, and force them into retirement because there is an action that you can ping your blame on. Like there is this very clear, direct, abhorrent thing that somebody did. And I think it's just really hard psychologically to represent the consequences, the outcomes, right? You know, like if there's like so many other links in the chain between what you, what you, the order that you issued and the actual like horrible, morally atrocious right. outcome. Yeah, it seems nebulous and probabilistic too, and and even if you're convinced, it doesn't seem like it. it yeah, and that's actually that is a problem because I think that's why a lot of things like you know, the criminal justice system, drone policy, like it's really hard to analyze how these uh, steps tie them to specific decisions that people have made based on the information that they had at the time. It's really hard to assign responsibility for that. Right. If you were constructing a robot that was just to make moral judgments, maybe you would want them to like be able to calculate that <laughs> and yeah. like solely based on the outcomes of people's actions, like calibrate their outrage. <laughs> but we didn't evolve to be able to do that. We did it. AI will do this. Though. Yeah. AI will judge us AI, solely based on consequences. Our AI overlords <laughs> will uh, right. clean all this up. All right. Do you... I think we should save War and Massacre for another time. I agree. I, I did want to say one other thing about ruthlessness in, ruthlessness in public life, which we didn't talk about, which is he has this brief little sort of, I don't know if it's a detour, but he talks about the intoxication of power and yeah. how good it can feel to be <laughs> yeah, to exercise power and I, I don't totally know where that fit in the overall structure of the argument, but it was both interesting and also something I don't... I, 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 I believe that people actually have this, but I don't feel it's true about me. Like, I don't like being in positions of power, and I don't like exercising the power if I do have it. I absolutely had the same intuition like i'm trying to find the quote it's like almost weird he's like fetishizing he's like let's just admit that we all get boners from power like like let's just call a spade a spade and just say like i jerk off to the thought of controlling large (laughs) among other things such a picture disguises the fact that the exercise of power in whatever role is one of the most personal (laughs) forms of individual self-expression and a rich source of purely personal pleasure. The pleasure of power is not easily acknowledged, but it is one of the f- most primitive human feelings, probably one of with infantile roots. Those who have had it f- for years sometimes realize its importance only when they have to retire. Despite their grave demeanor, impersonal diction, and limited physical expression, holders of public power are personally involved to an intense degree and probably enjoying it immensely. Uh, 
It's uh, so. <laughs> it's. Uh, I felt dirty reading it. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Like, but I really think this might be a one of these personality differences. Like, there's just a lot of individual differences in because I because I there, it's clearly true of some people. Right, it's clearly yeah. true of the Harvey Weinstein's of the world. It's cl- clearly true of some people in an academia, right? Yeah, like there absolutely. are some people who just love it. They, they, their dicks get hard when they get to like, <laughs> ter- like write a bad review and reject a paper, or <laughs> you know, like Do, deny yeah. somebody tenure or whatever. Yeah, but no. I don't think it's. I, I think. I also think there's a group of people, and I think I'm one of them, maybe I'm deluded, that really don't like that position and really try hard to avoid exercising power. And, you know, and that's like, that's why I don't think I'm a particularly good leader, is I don't like to be in that position in the first I, place. I, I, I like to be respected. Anything. But I, I don't want to uh, say anything, but I agree with you. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. no. I, okay. So I had the same intuition, and I was trying to get a little out of my own perspective and 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 maybe give a give this a fair a, a fair sort of consideration maybe i actually have quite a bit of power in my life and uh maybe i am completely taking for granted that it is a source of pleasure to me and maybe when that power is removed i will i will be upset by it but i actually it's not that I deny that I have power. Like, it's right. It's, it's clear that I have power over plenty of people. It's that that I don't think that I care much to have it. Like, I don't. Like, I really. I think you're right. I, it's it's more money, more problems. Like, it's more of a headache. Yeah. Than than it is a source of pleasure. Yeah like at all like i intense pleasure yeah he turned into a freudian for a second i want to distinguish the pleasure that comes with having autonomy so being right uh, relatively which i think to me is the most important quality of life aspect that i enjoy is people in power have limited ability to fuck with me but like I think what he's talking about is our ability to fuck with other people who are below us and that's the part that I don't that I don't get. I love whatever autonomy we're able to have right. uh, in our professions and in our lives. I love that. I treasure it. But but that's different than exercise of power. That's just exercise of freedom and the freedom from other people in power have uh how about the like maybe it's not just the fucking with part maybe it is sort of your and you've probably had this like your your feeling that you're now in a position to help out somebody who was who's like up and coming right yeah. like you don't diss Benny Blanco from the Bronx like you actually take him under your wing that's yeah. a sort of power that 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 you know maybe is is pleasurable but i don't think it's because of the power no it's just because of like helping and that's not what he's talking about that's like i think he's talking about the the exercise of power not in a way that it helps people like that you're mentoring people or something like that yeah yeah do you think that people who are 
drunk with power are more likely to go uh, see a dominatrix once a month to get whipped? Well, I have <laughs> to think that because I don't do that. So <laughs> It's just because you can't afford it on your salary. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah. If I had more power. I would, uh, that's the only thing i've always thought that like those those like b- those power games that like i have this stereotype of like a rich old powerful british man right. like going to a dominatrix i have no idea if that's empirically accurate or not. i, I totally agree like i think louis ck if he is exercising power if he's like you know if he's power drunk like jerking off in front of women <laughs> like he also seems like the type who's gonna go get whipped by a dog like get whipped yeah. yeah it's it's a sort of a paradox that it's like it's not until you have enough power that you can submit to somebody else yeah i i just want to be left alone i don't want to be whipped <laughs> i don't be like whipping i don't want like i don't i don't want to be the whippy or the whipper <laughs> like i just, just want uh, yeah. I, uh now we'll try to shake the those images <laughs> all right on that note <laughs> on that note um yeah join us next time on very bad wizards <laughs> oh god Just a very bad wizard.